Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Alrighty, well, this morning we begin a new chapter in our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you were with us last week, we studied the end of Luke chapter 7, where a Pharisee invited Jesus over for a meal at his house. And a woman who was a prostitute likely shows up, starts weeping and kissing Jesus' feet. And the lesson that Jesus taught from this incident was that a sinner who had been forgiven should love him greatly as a result. And this woman, you may remember, she just went overboard with her love for Christ. She came with this very expensive alabaster ointment. She poured it out on Jesus' feet as an expression of her gratitude for the mercy that she had been shown. We talked about how she understood who she was and her sinful lifestyle. She was overwhelmed at the love of God for someone like her. And that's where we ended last week. This woman who had been the recipient of God's mercy was now displaying great love and affection for Christ at great cost to herself. But she was so thankful to him for all that, she'd done, for all that he had done for her uh, that she was willing to do that. And so this morning our text builds off of what we saw last week. Uh, We start in verse 1 where it says, It came to pass afterward, so this is after this event with the woman, that he, Jesus, went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Now that's just a summary statement of Jesus' ministry. We've seen that a couple of times in Luke's gospel, uh, where he gives this in a sentence or two. Uh, This is what Jesus did. He traveled around. He preached the kingdom of God. That was always his message, the gospel of the kingdom. And so he would travel around from one city to the next, and he would preach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Uh, He would often teach large groups of people outdoors throughout the week. And anyone who wanted could come hear him teach. Uh, We we know that hundreds and sometimes even thousands of people showed up to hear him teach. And notice the content of Jesus' message. According to to Luke, it says Jesus was going from one town to the next, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. He was preaching the gospel. Uh, We've talked about this many times, but the word gospel just means good news. And so when you see that he's preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom, that is the gospel. The good news that you can be forgiven of all your sins and made right with God by faith and repentance. That was Jesus' message. And this was his ministry for three years. He traveled all over Israel preaching this gospel. Notice Luke also mentions that the twelve were with Jesus. So we have 13 men total. We have the twelve disciples that we've talked about at length, and then Jesus traveling around Uh, constantly preaching. Now that leads to a question. How were they able to do this? Uh, How were 13 men able to leave their jobs, leave their livelihoods, and travel around and preach? How could they afford this? Uh, How did they pay for their food, for their necessities? I mean, you can't just uh, have 13 men with families, some of them at least, uh, quit their jobs all at once and start traveling. There has to be something Uh, someone funding this. And by the way, we know, we've seen already in Luke's gospel that some of these men, at least presumably all of them, did leave their jobs. Uh, Matthew, remember, he was a tax collector and he left his tax booth. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were all fishermen before they met Christ. And Luke told us already that they left their boats and their nets behind when they started following Christ. So how was this ministry financially possible? And Luke gives us the answer, starting in verse 2. It says, Certain women, which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of, whom was, uh, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others, which ministered unto him 
of their substance. So certain people, Luke points out here specifically women, uh, they had been healed of sicknesses by Christ or they had been demon-possessed and Jesus had cast the demons out of them. And so uh, they were apparently so thankful that they decided they were going to fund Jesus' ministry. Uh, These women and many others, as Luke says, funded Jesus' ministry as he traveled throughout the cities preaching the gospel. They ministered unto him of their substance, which just means that they gave financially from what they had to support these 13 men as they traveled around. Uh, Luke is the only gospel writer to mention these women. It's a very interesting note. If we didn't have these couple of verses, uh, we really wouldn't know how Jesus was afforded to do this or how the 12 uh, were able to do this ministry. But these women are unsung heroes. Uh, Jesus' widespread ministry and the impact that he and his apostles had on the world would not have been possible without the financial support of these women. And so they, they play a crucial role in Christianity's beginning. Luke mentions three of them in particular, and again, he adds the note in verse 3 that there were many others. So these are just examples of some people that supported Christ's ministry. But the three that he mentions, uh, first is Mary from Magdala. That's why it says Mary Magdalene. That's not her last name. Uh, that is a, a town near Capernaum and near Tiberias there on the, on the Sea of Galilee. It's sort of like saying, I'm David the New Yorker. Okay, and that's, that's how they, they, uh, they talk about it. So Magdalene, she's from Magdalia. Uh, she was likely... Uh, I'm sorry, she was demon-possessed. We know that she had seven demons in her before she met Christ. And so just a very vexed woman that, uh, you know, we don't know exactly what the demons were doing there, but whatever it is, there's just some statements there that she was demon-possessed. And Jesus came and healed her. He cast those demons out of her and transformed her life. And so she started following Christ. Uh, Next, it mentions Joanna. She was likely a wealthy woman, considering her husband was uh, Herod's household manager. He was kind of in charge of Herod's estate, and Herod was uh, sort of basically a king or a tetrarch is the proper term. Uh, So this was a high up official, and and this is uh, his wife who became a follower of Christ. And so she had some means, some financial, um, uh, likely some wealth. And so she also gave and funded Christ's ministry. Susanna mentioned there, uh, we don't know much about her, but... Uh, For whatever reason, Luke includes her. She was another one that followed Christ and that funded this ministry. The point is, all of these women were cleansed either of evil spirits or of infirmities, as Luke says, sicknesses. Uh, They had experienced forgiveness of their sins, and so as a result, they gave to Jesus financial support. So today, we're going to talk about money. This is my first time since I've been your pastor that I've addressed this subject, but it is something that is in Scripture, and so it's something we need to talk about every once in a while. And specifically this morning, we're going to talk about how the the way we handle our finances demonstrates the love that we have for God, how our understanding of what God has done for us should result in us giving toward Jesus' kingdom purposes. Uh, Quick disclaimer before I get started. I understand that some people get upset when a pastor even talks about the subject of money, and because in some churches that's just a taboo subject you don't touch. And quite frankly, I think that may reveal an unhealthy love of money if we bristle at the thought of a preacher talking about how much we give. Uh, The reason I want to talk about this today, first of all, is because I'm told in Scripture that I will have to give an account for the members of the church that I pastor. I'm not sure all of what that means, but I think, at least in some part, the way that you all live your Christian lives is a reflection of my pastoring. Uh, And that's a heavy responsibility if I think about that, and and I should think about that. But the way that I lead this church should have a, a result in the lives of the members of this church. So I have a responsibility before God to teach the whole counsel of God, to hold back nothing that would be profitable, as Paul says. 
And that includes what the Bible teaches about finances. And I would rather upset someone today than have you be upset with me on Judgment Day for not teaching the whole counsel of God and avoiding this subject. It would certainly be easier for me to talk about other things, uh, but this is a subject the New Testament has much to say about, and so I think it would be wrong for me as your pastor to not address it. And uh, I hope we can still be friends afterward. That's my goal. Every day we think about money. I remember a, a former pastor of mine used to say, if you've been awake three hours this morning, you've already thought about money. And every time he said that, I would kind of get offended. Like, no, I have, and I'm not that obsessed with money. And then I would think back to the morning, and sure enough, I had thought about money. It's, if you've been awake for just a few hours, in some way you've thought about making more money or how you're going to get through this month or what you're going to spend money on, money is just something that is constantly in our minds. Uh, we make decisions about money constantly, some big and some small. Uh, we think constantly about how we'll make more money and how we'll use our money. And Jesus taught that how you use your money is one of the clearest indications of where your heart is. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus taught, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. So Jesus shows here that we have an opportunity with our finances to use it for temporary things that won't last or for kingdom purposes that will last forever. In other words, by investing our money in eternal matters, we can gain something that outlasts our time here on earth. And Jesus continues in verse 21, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I think we can all understand this. If you want to know what's really important to you, just look at what you spend money on. Uh, if you love coffee, you don't mind spending that $5 at Starbucks on, uh, on some overpriced coffee. If you love sports, uh, that extra charge on your cable bill for the NBA bonus package seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, if you love your car, you'll have that monthly subscription to the best car wash in town. If you love your wife or your husband, you'll spend money on them. And all the wives are now nudging their husbands and I can feel my wife nudging me across the room. But perhaps a good question to start this morning is, what does the way you use money reveal about who and what you love most? What you do with your money is perhaps the clearest indicator of what you value in life. And all of us as Christians are living out a theology of money, whether we think about it or not, uh, consciously or unconsciously, we are revealing by our spending and giving habits what we believe and where our hearts are. I think one of the best ways to measure spiritual growth uh, is not about your feelings. Don't, don't think you're a good Christian because you have warm, fuzzy feelings for God. A good way to measure spiritual growth, I believe, is your priorities. Uh, when you grow spiritually, your priorities change, and they change radically, and that includes your finances. So this morning, I'd like to bring some clarity on an issue uh, that is in each of our lives, and perhaps we don't give enough thought to it. Uh, my suspicion is that some of us, when the offering time comes around on Sunday mornings, we pull out our wallet, we see what's in there, or if you're like me, you give online. Uh, I love online giving. I, I don't like ha having cash or checks or things like that. I guess it's just my generation. Uh, but we look in our wallets, and if there happens to be a 20 in there, we might put it in the plate. In other words, we don't really think about how much we should give and plan to give a set amount on Sunday. We just think about it during the 20 seconds that Malachi prays, and we kind of figure out, okay, I'll give this amount. I think that's how much, most of us probably think about giving. Uh, let me encourage each one of us to think and pray and consider what you can and should give each month and have a plan to do so. Don't just put in whatever strikes you as a good amount to give today. Plan this out, think about it, and consider what you should give. 
My goal today is to teach a biblical perspective on giving, uh, not just my opinion, but what we can deduce from the clear statements of Scripture on the subject. And we're going to focus our attention specifically on giving to ministry. So for most of us, uh, that's giving here to our local church, giving to missions, things like that. Uh, there's lots of other things in the Bible that talk about uh, savings, that talk about working diligently, uh, that talk about not loving money, that talk about giving to the poor. There's all sorts of things we could talk about, uh, but we would be here for three hours if I tried to hit all of those. So this morning, we're going to talk specifically about giving to ministry. And one reason we're going to do that is because that's what the text talks about, is giving to the gospel ministry. That's what's happening here. These women are giving to Jesus and the 12 apostles so that they could be financially supported in order to preach the gospel. And in the same way that these women like Joanna and Mary Magdalene gave financial support to the ministry of Christ, each one of us has the same opportunity. When Jesus left earth, he, the, the work that he was doing didn't just stop. Uh, he established the church as an organization that would carry on uh, the work that he had started, the, the goal of spreading the gospel to the world. And so when you give to a local church, you are supporting the ministry of Christ. We're preaching the very same message today that Jesus preached 2,000 years ago. And so uh, the more financial support a church has, obviously, the more effectively and the more widespread the impact of that message can be. So today we're talking specifically about giving to a local church. And I want to answer three questions about giving. Uh, number one, are all Christians expected to give financially to the church? In other words, uh, is giving to a church a requirement for Christians, or is it just a good thing to do? Uh, number two, assuming you believe it is a requirement, how much should you give? And perhaps that's the question we all really want to know. Uh, how much should we give? Well, give me an amount. Give me a percentage. And it'd be easier if the Bible just gave us an amount to give, and then we'd know that we were doing what God wanted. Uh, but it's not quite that clear cut, and so we're going to try to address how much we should give. And then the last question that we'll end on is why we should give. Uh, what should be our motivation in giving to the Lord's work? Uh, so that's where we're headed this morning. First of all, 2 Corinthians 9-7, does the Bible command Christians to give to a church or is it an option? 2 Corinthians 9-7 says, Every man, as he purposeth in, uh, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So Paul says very clearly there, every man should give. Uh, they shouldn't all give the same amount necessarily. We'll talk about that later. But every man should give as he's purposed in his heart. And giving something is expected of every true Christian. Uh, Paul explains some of the logic behind this in 1 Timothy chapter 5 where he says, Let the elders or pastors that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And that is a financial term there. So an elder or a pastor that leads a church well should be counted worthy of double honor, which is uh, in the context there referring to financial support especially those who work at teaching the Word. So this is a model found throughout the New Testament, uh, that in an ideal New Testament church, the way it works is the members give to support the, the teaching pastor so that he doesn't work. Uh, the goal is that a pastor could give himself wholly to the ministry of the Word. That's not so a pastor can just be lazy, get rich off the church members. That's not the idea. The idea is that he's freed up throughout the week to study more intensely. Now, obviously, our church isn't at that point. I do work a secular job, and I'm perfectly willing to do that. Uh, but in the, in the ideal uh, New Testament church, this is what Scripture teaches, is that a pastor should be financially supported so he doesn't have to work a full-time job. He's then freed up to spend his time studying and leading the church. 
And it's supposed to be a blessing to the church to have a pastor who spends his week studying, preparing to teach. I, I can tell you right now, my sermons would be a lot better, uh, and I think I would be a more effective pastor if I had more time to spend to those things. And so that is the ideal church presented in the New Testament. Uh, listen to what Paul wrote in the, to the church at Philippi. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, he says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. So he's saying, nobody gave to me financially except for your church. Verse 16, For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So Paul says, I'm glad you sent money to me, not because I'm trying to get rich. Okay, this isn't about me, but because when you give money to my ministry, that frees me up to be more productive in reaching people with the gospel. And so he says, you, have, you Philippians have a part in the fruit that I'm getting. Uh, everyone that Paul led to Christ, every church that Paul planted, uh, the people who financially supported him had a part in that ministry. They were partnering with the Apostle Paul. And so, and, and it's the same way with the, the folks who uh, supported Christ 2,000 years ago. Those names that we looked at, Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna, they get a part in Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus went around preaching the gospel and he, he transformed the world. And yet, Mary Magdalene gets some of the credit for that. Uh, Joanna gets some of the credit for each person who was saved under Christ's preaching. And many others that Luke doesn't even mention. He doesn't give us their names, and yet they played a crucial part in getting Jesus to lost people. And in the same way today, by financially supporting a church, you're partnering with Christ in his ministry. And that's an opportunity every single person has to make an impact with your life. You may never preach a sermon. I don't think Mary Magdalene did. Uh, you may never be able to have a, a, some sort of evangelistic ministry. I, I don't think Joanna did. And yet they had a major part in the ministry of Christ by their financial support. Uh, you may never pastor a church like Paul did. But the Christians in Philippi who gave to Paul's ministry were partnering with him in his work. So yes, to the first question, all Christians should give to the ministry of Christ. Now that leads to a much more difficult question. And that is how much should we give? Uh, maybe even a more specific question, what about tithing? That's a buzzword in Christianity for you. Should we tithe? Uh, we'll talk about that in depth this morning because this is something Christians come to different perspectives on. Uh, and I, I, I'm not the be-all, end-all on this, this uh, subject at all. There's a lot of different opinions. But I'm going to give you my opinion, and you can decide for yourself if you come to the same conclusion. First of all, I want to give just a brief introduction to tithing for those of you who might be unfamiliar with the term. The word tithe means tenth. Okay, so 10%. If you, if you give a tithe, it's giving 10% of something. And the first time this concept appears in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 14, where Abraham is returning home. He's just won a victory in battle. Uh, and he return, returns home and he's, he meets Melchizedek, who is a priest of God. And he gives Melchizedek 10% of what he had gained in battle. So this is Genesis 14, verse 20. It says, Blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So Abraham is the first one to tithe. Uh, there's no explanation in the text about why he did this, but for some reason, you know, it doesn't say that God told him to give 10%, uh, but for some reason, whatever it is, Abraham decided to give 10% of what he had gained to Melchizedek. And this becomes a precedent throughout the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 28 uh, Jacob promised God that he would tithe. Genesis 28, verse 20 says, Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, 
and will give me bread to eat and raiment to put on, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then shall the Lord be my God, and this stone which I have set for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So Jacob says, God, if you meet my needs, if you provide for me, I will give 10% of whatever I get to you. Later in the chronology of the Old Testament, God established the tithe as a law. Uh, by the time of Moses, God clearly gives the command to, to the Israelites that they are to give 10% of their income. Now, the Israelites in the Old Testament are mostly farmers, uh, so 10% of their income was livestock, was crops. And so they would give some of those animals and some of those vegetables and things to, uh, to the tabernacle and then later the temple. Uh, Leviticus 27, verse 30 is where this is established. It says, All the tithe of the land whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. And if a man will at all redeem aught of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. So there's the, uh, the codifying of that principle of 10% into law in the Old Testament, that every Israelite was required to give 10%. Uh, Numbers chapter 18 explains some of what those tithes went to. If you're wondering, what did they do with these livestock? What did they do with these crops? Which was uh, their money in that day. Numbers 18 verse 24 says, But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as an heave offering unto the Lord, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore I have said unto them, Among the children of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. So the tithes that the rest of the tribes of Israel gave went to the Levites. Uh, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and the Le well, 13 if you count the Levites, and the Levites were selected specially uh, to care for the temple and to care for the tabernacle before that. And so it was their job to offer the incense, to offer animal sacrifices, basically to do the religious work. They were the pastors, if you would, of their day. And so the other tribes of Israel gave 10% of their income to support the Levites so they would be freed up to do the work of ministry, uh, very similar to, the, to what we have in the New Testament. Tithing went from a precedent then, set by Abraham and then Jacob, to eventually being a law. And again, all Israelites were required to tithe according to Scripture. And by the time of the prophet Malachi, he says it's stealing from God to withhold your tithe. Uh, to not give 10% of your income, Malachi says, not this Malachi, Malachi the prophet says, uh, that it is stealing from God. He's smiling at me back there. Uh, Malachi 3 verse 8 says, Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. So the Israelites were refusing to pay their tithe. They were not giving uh, the 10% that God had required. And so he says, you are stealing from me, and you're cursed for that. And this warning of judgment is followed by the promise of blessing for obedience. Matthew, uh, Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, says the Lord, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And so most, uh, many Christians today feel that there is an obligation on them to give 10% of their income because of texts like this, uh, Malachi, where he says it's stealing from God not to tithe. And I think that's a good instinct. Uh, you don't want to say that what God says is stealing in Malachi is perfectly fine for us to do today without good reason. We don't want to be guilty of calling good what God calls evil. 
At the same time, we aren't Jews, and we aren't living in the Old Covenant. We are New Testament Christians, and since we don't apply everything from the Old Testament Jewish traditions and laws, such as animal sacrifices, it would follow that the tithe command might not be binding on us today either, unless it is reaffirmed in the New Testament. And so when we look at what the apostles wrote in the New Testament, there is no mention of Christians after the cross tithing to the church. Okay, there is no mention of that whatsoever. They certainly gave to the church, Christians gave, uh, but the 10% rule of the Old Testament is not commanded by the New Testament apostles. In fact, uh, every time the apostles talk about giving, they're careful not to use the word tithe. Uh, They say you should give, you should give sacrificially, you should give generously, but they never give you a percentage like in the Old Testament. We are commanded to give in proportion as God has blessed us. Uh, We are told to give generously and sacrificially, but never are we given an amount. Never are we given a percentage in the New Testament. So to sum it up, I believe tithing was an old covenant command given specifically to the Jews. It began as a principle established by Abraham, and then it was codified into law. And in a sense, it it was also a form of taxation, at least part of it was, because the Israelites were living in a theocratic government, right? So religion and, and the government were one and the same. It's not like our system today. And so part of those ties that were given uh, were given sort of like taxes. Uh, also, just a quick footnote on this. You can study this out later. But the ties of the Old Testament don't actually equal 10%. You gave different tithes on different things, and every few years you'd give more. And so it actually comes out to about 23 and a third percent. Uh, So if any of you feel that it's binding on you to tithe according to the Old Testament and you would like to give 23 and a third percent, we would certainly accept that. Uh, Now let's look at what the New Testament does say. Let's try to figure out how much we ought to be giving. If the 10% rule doesn't necessarily apply to us, uh, how can we know what we ought to give? 1 Corinthians 16 says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week... Let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So Paul says we are to give as God has prospered each one of us. I'll get back to that concept in just a few minutes, but let's finish looking at a few more references in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. That makes sense. If you sow a little bit of seed, you'll have a lot of crops. If you sow a lot of seed, you'll have a lot more crops. Verse 7, every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Uh, So here Paul is saying that each one of us should decide what we will give uh, as as we purpose in our heart. It's, It's an individual choice. The church can't tell you what to give. I can't tell you what to give. That's something you need to figure out. You need to uh, give as you've purposed in your heart. And what we should give, according to Paul in this text, should be bountifully or generously. We ought to give in proportion as God has blessed us, and we ought to give generously. Uh, Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 12. He gives uh, a list of spiritual gifts and different roles that people have in the church. Romans 12 verse 6 says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, Or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth on teaching. Or he that exhorteth on exhortation. He that giveth, let him do it with simplicity. Now that's a very strangely translated uh, word in the King James. If you look at it in the ESV, I've got it up here, uh, much clearer. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. So again, uh, as God has prospered us, we are to give generously. So the question is, how much has God prospered you? 
Uh, how much has God blessed you financially? And what would it look like for each of us to give to the work of the Lord generously? And certainly, we need to establish that looks different for every person in this room. Uh, generosity for you might be stinginess for me or vice versa. We can't just say uh, that because someone is giving this amount, they're not being generous. It, generosity looks different uh, for each one of us. Uh, let me give you a few statistics here. And these are just across-the-board statistics in America. The average church member in America gives 2.5% of their income to the church. Uh, 40% of church members give nothing to the church. That's across evangelical churches in America. That is not our church. I'm very glad that in our church, almost everyone who attends regularly gives consistently uh, to our ministry. And that's a very unusual thing. We're very, very thankful for that participation. But my point is here that although I don't believe the New Testament Christians are required to tithe, to give 10%, we are required to give in proportion with how God has blessed us financially. And as 21st century Christians living in America... We are the wealthiest Christians that have ever lived. And so probably for most of us, if we give as God has blessed us, and if we give generously out of our abundance, uh, might I suggest that for most of us that might look like more than 10%. Rather than being relieved that the 10% the rule doesn't apply to us today, I'm convicted more by the commands of the New Testament because I've been blessed by God to live in a country of abundance. And for me to give only 10% of my income seems to me to not be very generous at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. And so here we have a very poor church that is giving generously, is Paul's point. Verse 3, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And so Paul says there uh, that they, they gave generously, even though they were in deep poverty. And each person's giving, as we mentioned earlier, each person's giving will look different depending on what they have. Some will give more, some will give less. Not everyone should give the same amount. Uh, verse 11 of this same chapter says, Now therefore perform the doing of it, uh, talking about giving, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. So every person gives out of what you have. Verse 12, For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to, ha to that he hath not. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want, and their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be an equality. Uh, so you give out of what you have. Some can afford only to give a smaller amount. Uh, others that have more can give more. And if everybody does their part, Paul says, the needs are met. Uh, if if the, the wealthy people give generously and if the poor people do their part and give generously, the needs are met together. A good example of this type of generosity, even though someone doesn't necessarily have much, is found in Mark chapter 12. It says, Jesus sat over against the treasury and beheld, that means he watched, how the people cast money into the treasury, and many that were rich cast in much. Now, wouldn't that be an awkward setting to be uh, giving your, your tithe money or your, or your giving, uh, and a bunch of people are just standing there watching you, seeing exactly how much you're giving. And so verse 42, There came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, 
which make a farthing. This is like two pennies. She threw in hardly anything. So these rich people are giving uh, large amounts, very impressive amounts of money. And this widow comes in and throws in two pennies. Verse 43. Jesus called unto him his disciples and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. So Jesus says that this widow who gave two pennies uh, gave more than the rich people, even though the amount was less. Uh, God, God wants you to be generous with your giving, and for some of us, uh, giving 20 bucks a week is generous. And for others, that would be very stingy to give the same amount. So again, this is the, you can't have an across-the-board rule about uh, an expectation of what people should give. Rather, we are to examine our own finances and ask ourselves, what amount are we able to give that would be considered giving generously in proportion as God has blessed us? And each one of us is incredibly wealthy. I don't know if you realize that, but you are. Everyone in this room is incredibly wealthy. And if you're thinking to yourself, I, I don't think I'm rich at all, that's because you're comparing yourself to all the other rich people around you. Everyone in this room had all the water you needed this week, and none of us thought twice about it. And that reality is not the case in many parts of our world even today. Uh, most of us ate plenty this week. A few of us probably could have eaten considerably less. Uh, you may not be rich by American standards, but the standard of living that the poorest person in this room is living is far higher than most of the world today and pretty much all of the world in the past. If you go back uh, through the centuries, uh, we are living like kings used to live hundreds of years ago. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that God makes us rich. We're not going to look at this right now, but God makes us rich not to increase our standard of living, but so that we can be more generous. When God blesses Christians with uh, financial abundance, it is for the purpose of them being able to be generous. And so when we frame the question of what generosity looks like, with the reality that we are the wealthiest and most prosperous Christians in history, 10% starts to look less and less like New Testament generosity for most American Christians today. We're supposed to give in proportion to how God has blessed us, and I think many of us don't see ourselves as that prosperous because there's somebody else with more. And we compare ourselves to the rich people in America, and we start to feel like we're being very generous. And although tithing isn't necessarily a requirement for us as New Testament Christians, I don't think that lets us off the hook to give less. In fact, when I read the commands for generous giving in the New Testament, and I look at how comfortably and prosperously I'm living today compared to most Christians throughout history, compared to the Christians Paul was writing to in Philippi, I think I would be disobedient to Scripture to give only 10%. So do I believe that if you're not giving 10% of your income to the, the local church and you're living in the richest country in the world that you are necessarily robbing God, I would say it's quite likely that you are. And I'm not saying that on the basis of what Malachi wrote 400 years ago. I'm saying it on the basis of what Paul wrote 30 years after the cross. Uh, now, there would be circumstances, certainly, in which that wouldn't be the case. A good example of this, uh, Malachi shared this with us a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night. Some of you were here. Uh, Malachi got ripped off in some business dealings, uh, tens of thousands of dollars, it's $20,000 total right now. Uh, somebody just cheated him out of some money. Uh, in a situation like that, I would not say it's necessarily wise for him to be tithing right now. He's getting the authorities involved, trying to get all this sorted out, but he may end up with uh, $20,000 worth of debt that he, he did not purposely accrue at all. And so there are certainly situations in which I don't think you ought to be tithing. If you're in a situation like that, it, it might be foolish for you to continue tithing. 
A legalistic church would teach that tithing is robbing God, and so even in a situation like Malachi's in, he should still give 10% of his income, even if that's just making the situation worse. And I think that that type of thinking is taking an Old Testament law and enforcing it inappropriately on Christians today. And so there may be seasons of life, is what I'm saying, where to tithe would be foolish. But for most of the time, I think generous sacrificial giving for most of us looks like perhaps more than just 10%. And I think that's a pretty safe statement. Now here's why I'm hesitant to say uh, you don't have to tithe or you do have to tithe. I know I'm not giving you too much clarity there. And that's because I think if you don't make tithing a rule, people who love money will give far less and think they're okay to do so. And if you do make tithing a rule, legalistic people will give exactly 10% and not a penny more. And when I've heard someone talk about how tithing doesn't apply to us today, I've always had the sense that they're trying to justify giving less. Uh, that because we don't have to tithe, I can give my 2.5% like most, most American church members. And so I, what I don't want to do is crush those who are going through an unusually tight season of life financially into giving 10%, even though that may not be reasonable for you right now. But I also don't want to give license to the money lover who wants to give 2% of his money so he can spend more on himself. So I guess my answer to the question about tithing is that 10% to me seems like a good starting point for new Christians especially to start giving regularly. And beyond that, each of us needs to evaluate our own lives to see what we can give and what we should give. Uh, What would be generous giving considering how God has blessed you? That's something each of us need to ask ourselves. I can't tell you how much you should give. I can show you what the Bible teaches about generosity, but as far as the, the number that you ought to be giving regularly, that's something you need to evaluate your own finances to come up with. So final, final note on that is evaluate your own financial situation and decide what you believe is generous giving for you. Uh, now we'll move to the last section of our study. I want to close by saying not only do we need to, each of us, evaluate our own finances to determine what we should give, But I also think we need to evaluate our hearts. Because you'll not please God with the amount you give if your heart is not right. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9-7, we've read this a few times, but I want to focus on the last part of the verse. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. We're commanded in Scripture to give, but we're also commanded about the attitude we should have in giving. And I believe that if you get the heart right, you'll get the amount right. I think all of us can justify how little we give. All of us could rationalize right now why we should only give the 2%. Uh, And if that's your heart attitude, you'll never give generously. If we think, I'll be generous uh, someday when I get ahead financially, uh, every statistic has proven that 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 is not the case. The more wealthy people become, the less they give. I heard a story once about a pastor who asked a farmer, Uh, If you had two chickens, would you give one to God? The farmer said, yes, I would. The pastor asked, if you had two cows, would you give one to God? And And the farmer said again, yes. The pastor asked, if you had two pigs, would you give one to God? And the farmer said, now that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. I think that's how many of us think about our money. If you're not generous now, you won't be generous later. Because generous giving isn't really about how much you have. It's about your heart. Uh, That's how a widow who gives only two pennies can be giving generously because generosity is an attitude of the heart. It's not about uh, how much wealth you have. There's not an amount of wealth that's required for you to be generous. Paul wrote to a pastor in Ephesus named Timothy about how he should preach 
on the subject of money to the rich people in his church. First uh, Timothy chapter 6 says, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Uh, and since I'm pastoring a church full of rich people, as we've already established, uh, let me encourage you, don't trust in riches. Recognize that God is the source of each blessing we receive, and so we ought to be ready and willing, each one of us, to give generously. A generous giving comes when your motivation to give is right. We've already seen we're not to give grudgingly or of necessity. That means we're not supposed to give out of a sense of guilt. Uh, don't give because you feel a duty like you have to. Giving that is motivated by guilt, I don't believe will be generous. I believe generosity comes when you're giving out of a heart of gratitude. I want to illustrate that by something I think each one of us has probably experienced. You ever um, watch a TV show and you see those commercials with the three-legged dogs, right? The really sad commercials where the dog is just looking up at you and they're trying to get you to send money uh, so you can go save these dogs. They're trying to guilt trip you into sending them money. Uh, basically, what the commercial is saying is you can send us money and save these dogs, or you can fast forward to the show you're watching, you heartless jerk, right? That's, that's <laughs> basically the point. Uh, now, let's say you feel really bad for the dogs. You decide to give some money to this organization. How much will you give? Maybe you've never considered this before, but I think I know exactly how much you'll give. Uh, you will do a quick calculation in your mind, maybe without even realizing it, and you will give however much you think will make the guilty feeling go away. That's what guilt-motivating giving does, and usually that comes up to about 30 bucks, right? It's, it's enough to make the guilty conscience shut up. And that's what guilt-motivated giving does. If you give because you feel like you have to, you'll only give enough to make the guilty feeling go away. And my hunch is that most Christians give out of a guilt motivation. Uh, either I have to give 10%, so I do that in order not to feel like a, a lame Christian, or I, 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 maybe you don't have the 10% rule, but you feel like you should give, and so you give however much makes the guilty feeling stop, instead of giving out of gratitude for all God's done for you. If you give out of gratitude, if that's your motivation, you'll keep on giving as much as you can, and you'll want to give more than you're even able to. Uh, that's one way, I think, for you to tell what your motivation is in giving. Is it guilt or is it gratitude? Here's a question. Do you wish you had more to give? Or do you wish you didn't feel guilty and thus didn't have to give as much as you do right now? Uh, the answer to that shows what your motivation is in giving. Now, I know we've sort of gone all over the Bible today and we've looked at uh, several different scriptures, but at this point I want to go back to our text in, in Luke and just talk about the motivation that these women had in giving to the ministry of Christ. It seems to me like they were gratitude givers, not guilt givers. Uh, the Luke tells us that these people were healed of various infirmities. Some, like Mary Magdalene, had demons cast out of them. And so they were giving to Christ, giving to his ministry out of a heart of gratitude. They were thankful for what Jesus had done for them, and that fueled their generosity. Uh, by the way, same thing we saw last week. The prostitute who came and uh, spent that very expensive alabaster ointment on Christ, she did so because she was so incredibly grateful for, th for what God had done for her. That act of radical worship where she gave up that uh, likely her most valuable possession, that was motivated by gratitude. She loved Jesus much because she had been forgiven much. And that's the hard attitude I want each one of us to have. I want to love Jesus to the extent that it shows up in my giving. 
I want my, 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 my giving, my contributions to demonstrate how thankful I am to God. Uh, now, for some of you here today who are, maybe are newer Christians, uh, this might be a bit overwhelming. Maybe this is the first time you've really considered giving and what it would mean for you to be generous. And if this is all new to you, that's, that's okay. Giving is part of what it means to follow Christ. And as you grow in your faith and you learn more and mo more, uh, God will grow you in this area as well. Now, if you do have a heart that wants to give more, but you feel like you can't afford to, you feel like you're in a spot right now, you just cannot possibly give very much, you can't afford to be generous, uh, what do you do? Now, this isn't in the Bible necessarily, but it's uh, self-evidently true. You have two options. Number one, you can lower your current standard of living in order to free up more to give, or you can make more money. And I think both are actually scriptural. Uh, the New Testament talks about, give it, about working a job diligently in order to have more to give. Both of those are good ideas. And perhaps some of the reason we can't afford to give much is our own fault. Uh, can I just suggest that? And, and I'm including myself in here. Finances might be tight for us because we've made foolish decisions with our finances. So if you're someone who says, I'm just not good with money, and there's probably a few people here today who you, who you know, you're just not good with money, right? Some people just don't have necessarily knack for it, uh, and maybe you realize that. I'm going to give you a few principles. I think I wrote down seven or eight principles for financial stewardship. Most of these I could point to in Proverbs. I'm not going to take the time to run through all those scriptures right now. Uh, but these are just a few good wisdom principles for handling finances. Number one, especially in our day, be careful with credit cards. Some people like Dave Ramsey or whatever would say, don't ever use credit cards. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it depends on the person. Uh, credit cards can be helpful if you are, have the discipline to handle them wisely, but they can also be very dangerous if you don't. Uh, so if you know you can't handle having a credit card, it might be a good idea for you to go home and cut them up and just switch to cash or checks. And again, that's not a, a rule across the board at all. I have credit cards. My wife has credit cards. We've never been late on a payment. And if I ever was getting late on payments, I would probably get rid of my credit cards because those are uh, a dangerous trap for many people. Number two, have a steady source of income. Uh, I have an online eBay store where, I, where I, I sell ties. I don't know. How many of you knew that? Probably nobody here knew that. Uh, I sell ties online, and uh, that type of business fluctuates. Every month, it's different. Sometimes I've sold 200 ties. Sometimes I've sold 20 ties. Uh, so it fluctuates up and down like that. And I think that's, that's a fine thing to have, to have extra money. Maybe you sell things on Poshmark, or you drive an Uber, or whatever. Uh, all those things are fine, but you need to have a steady source of reliable income. Uh, you can't depend on something that fluctuates like that. Number three, be scared of debt. Uh, the Bible teaches that the borrower is slave to the lender. Again, I'm not saying you should never go into debt. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's even wise to, but you ought to be very scared to do so. Number four, don't spend money you don't have. Uh, don't spend your tax return until you know what it's going to be. Don't spend your, your, your paycheck that you're going to get next Friday. And, and by the way, I'm not saying I'm an expert at these things. This is one thing I do sometimes. I, I fall into that, where you know you're getting paid in a couple of weeks, and so you spend the money ahead of time. Uh, not a good idea. Number five, don't buy things you don't need and don't buy things you can't afford. Number six, live within margins. Uh, if every month you're barely getting your bills paid, something needs to change. You need to either look to lower your bills, lower your expenses, or raise your income. Number seven, have a savings account and try to keep something in it. Uh, there's going to be times where that savings account needs to be used. I understand that. Uh, I've certainly had those times where I had nothing in savings. But generally speaking, the goal should be to keep something in savings. 
Number eight, plan for retirement when you're young. Uh, don't think about retirement when you're 50 years old. Think about it when you are young. Uh, so one of the best things that my, my dad taught me, the stock market doubles on average every seven years. So if you put $30,000 into a, a 401k plan or IRA when you're 30 years old, you'll have a million when you're 65. And that's something people don't think about because we tend to think about retirement once we hit 45, 50, we start to get older and we think, oh, I need to do something. Uh, but you actually end up putting way more money than you need to. If you would just think about it early in life, you could do far better. Those are just a few principles for wise stewardship of our finances. Uh, and you can take those or leave those. But generosity and giving is a part of spiritual growth. And as we all try to grow in our walk with God, this is one area we need to be mindful of. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, encouraging them to give generously to the ministry. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says, Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. And he's speaking there about uh, giving. He says, You've grown spiritually in your faith. You've grown in your knowledge. You've grown in your personal character and in your love. Now grow in this area too. Grow in the area of giving. In verse 8, he says, I speak not by commandment, but by the occasion of the forwardness of others to prove the sincerity of your love. So he says there, I, I want you to grow in giving because that shows the sincerity of your love. And then he gives the ultimate motivation for giving in verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. Jesus left heaven and all the riches there, raised in a low-income family. Uh, he lived as a homeless man for years. And he gave up so much, even his life, for you and for your salvation. And Paul says, now let that be your motivation for giving to the ministry of Christ. Give generously to show your love for the one who gave it all for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these truths and uh, drill them deep into our hearts. I pray that each one of us, even over these next few weeks and next several days, that we would consider what it is you'd have us to give. Uh, and again, that amount is different for each one of us. Generosity looks different for each one of us. But I, I pray that you would challenge all of us to really consider, are we giving generously? Are we giving in proportion as you have blessed us? Or are we just giving out of a sense of guilt, out of a sense of necessity or grudgingly, as you say? Are we giving simply so we don't feel bad about not giving? Or are we giving out of a, a love for you and for all that you've done for us? I pray that you would help us to be grateful uh, for everything you left, everything you gave up for us, and that that in turn would cause a heart of gratitude to, to well up in each, each of our hearts uh, that would display itself in our giving to your work. pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. You just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219 885 9303. We would love to hear from you.